listening to The Anthony Ferrella Show, presented by WDSR, or better known as Duquesne Student Radio, the number one rated college sports radio show at Duquesne University. Now, here's your host, Anthony S. Ferrella III. We welcome you to the ninth edition of the Anthony Ferrella Show presented by WDSR. We got a jam-packed show today with a guest who is considered to be bigger than life in the sports media world, and that is Bill Hilgrove, the voice of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Also, he is the voice of the University of Pittsburgh men's basketball and football teams. Don't forget to tweet at us, at AF underscore WDSR, and your comments will be featured on the show if they are interesting enough. Now let's get to some tweets real quick before we hear from Bill. Uh, the big thing right now around town, obviously, is this Sean Miller speculation regarding the Pitt men's basketball job and really the Pitt men's basketball job uh, in general. So let's get to what the experts on Twitter had to say, or the so-called experts. Uh, Adam Bittner said, quote, the entire argument for Sean Miller is, quote, from here, end quote, never change Pittsburgh, end quote. So he's basically saying here that since Sean Miller has local ties uh, to Pittsburgh, that he automatically is the front runner for this job. Clearly, we saw that wasn't the case. Maybe it might be down the road. We'll see what happens uh, with that FBI investigation Sean Miller uh, is currently going going through. Uh, and he also did came, come out and say that he's not interested in the Pittsburgh job and uh, that he wishes them well uh, in their future. Um, Andrew Filipponi said, quote, give Dan Hurley's contract to Sean Miller and let's rock and roll, end quote. Uh, I agree with this as long as Sean Miller is cleared of anything and everything uh, with that FBI situation, uh, especially paying players. You can't have that. It's just not a good look for university. Uh, now, a lot of schools do do it. I will tell you this. Um, they just don't get caught, and Sean Miller might have gotten caught. We'll see what happens when they release it to the public. Um, Matt E. Halt tweeted, quote, Sean Miller and Jim Beheim, the kings, the king of early exits, end quote. Uh, I agree with about half of this tweet. Um, the Sean Miller part I do agree with because he has had a lot of lottery players and NBA players, and he hasn't really done anything in the tournament. And, and Jim Beheim, on the other hand, I think if he was a 10-seater lower in March, he's 7-1. and one. Uh, So I don't really understand the whole whole thing with that. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what he might come back out and say on Twitter uh, because some people were calling him out on that statement. But maybe he means when Jim Beheim was uh, a higher seed, maybe a 2, 3, 4, 5, or even 6. Uh, but we'll see what happens there on Twitter. And Mark Gunnels tweeted, Sean Miller, quote, Sean Miller is the most overrated coach in the country. So many lottery picks and still hasn't even made one Final Four. So like I just said, he's had a lot of lottery picks and hasn't really done a whole lot with it uh, outside of playing in the Pac-12, which on top of it is really a weak conference uh, to begin with. And here's the statement that the, the Arizona Players Program released on behalf of Sean Miller. Sean Miller did say, quote, I'm not a candidate for the University of Pittsburgh men's basketball head coaching vacancy. I wish them well in their search for a new coach. So we'll see what happens because we see, we saw this happen with Danny Hurley at Rhode Island uh, where he he came out after the game when they lost in the tournament and said, I'm not interested and I don't really give a crap about going uh, anywhere else. I'd rather stay here. And that was the right move to say, I believe. But uh, we'll see what happens there. And uh, now I want to transition into my interview with Bill Hillgrove. I talked to him early in the day and uh, this is what he had to say. Welcome to the show, Bill Hilgrove, the voice of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pitt Panthers. Bill, you are on the Anthony Ferrella Show. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's a nice slow time of year. Fewer deadlines. But guess what happens, Anthony? The honey-do list gets longer this time of year for me. <laughs> I actually do know what the honey-do list is, surprisingly. I've heard that from a few people recently. So if you didn't think I'd know about that, uh, I do. Uh, but I wanted to shift into something here with you. 
your career in broadcasting. Obviously, uh, you graduated from Central Catholic here in Pittsburgh. Uh, then that led into Duquesne University, where you earned a degree in journalism. And I also noticed that while you were at Duquesne, you were a student sports broadcaster for the men's basketball team. What inspired you to get involved with this at such a young age? Well, you know, actually it goes back before I went to high school. It was, uh, um, I was like 13 years of age, and my aunt, my mother's sister, was a, a nun, and she had a nun friend who ran the diocesan radio TV school. And so uh, uh, my dad was an electrician, and I figured, well, I'll show up and learn how to fix radios and TVs. Well, I was a little bit uh, mistaken because the nun handed me a script and said, read it. I read it. She said exactly what I'm looking for. And I said, what's that? She said, a 13-year-old brat. And I felt like saying, sister, I, I don't need a script for that. It comes natural. But anyhow, uh, I, I, I was cast in a radio drama that appeared on DUQ and also the, uh, the key sports stations on an, uh, an irregular basis. But still, it was live radio. And, you know, I got a feel at the age of 13 uh, that I had some talent on, on that side of the microphone. And that, and combined with my sports passion, uh, you know, it, it all led down this path. And uh, I kept saying as uh, it uh, progressed that I'll keep doing it as long as I don't feel a wall. Well, I haven't felt a wall yet, so I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah, I would say so. I totally agree. And hopefully you won't hit a wall soon. You've been great for the Pitt Panthers and especially for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I've enjoyed your calls over the years and uh, so many have. Uh, what's the biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome, um, at least at the beginning? So when you started this broadcasting, especially for uh, Duquesne Hoops, what was the biggest obstacle that you felt yourself trying to overcome? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, trying to uh, put in the back of your mind the enormity of the task that you have. Because obviously, uh, when I'm describing a game on the radio, a lot of people are depending on my descriptive skills. And I know that. And so it's, it's a challenge. And it's a challenge probably unlike uh, others, uh, you know, especially if I compare it to like doing sports talk shows or doing uh, TV sports you know, uh, doing the live stuff is a challenge because, first of all, you're on a tightrope and there's no net. And secondly, uh, you know, you have a responsibility to describe what you're seeing. And so that that's what I had to learn how to do. And I had a tip early on because I was at Channel 4 as a switchboard operator, tour guide, uh, that type thing. Uh, Ray Scott was there, and he and I talked about it. And he said to me, Billy, uh, and he was doing the Packers at the time and traveling from Pittsburgh to Green Bay to do it on a regular basis. He said 95% of your work is done before you step in the booth. The other 5% is having fun with what you see. And that was a big lesson. And uh, you just can't do enough preparation. And I learned that lesson young, and I think it's uh, held up well for me. And I appreciate Ray Scott and, and what he did for my career. You talked about preparation there a little bit. And this next question kind of is, is a little bit about preparation. How would you look to improve after each game you did as a student broadcaster? Was was practice really the only answer, or was preparing really uh, the big thing for you, like you just mentioned? Well, preparing, and you can prepare all you want, but uh, you still have to do it and live in the moment. And uh, that is the part that I tell young people, and I'll, I'll uh, include you in that group, Anthony. Uh, if you want to do what I do, the only way to learn it is to do it. And so fortunately, as a student at Duquesne, I had the opportunity to do 
uh, a lot of college basketball and a little bit of high school football. So when I was presented with the opportunity to help Ed Conway uh, with the pit football duties uh, starting in 1970, uh, and, and then my basketball duties because Ed couldn't travel, you know, I was prepared for both because I had done it. And I think there's, like I say, what's the, the commercial on TV say? Just do it. Nike, you got it right there. Um, was was our team any good uh, when you were doing the games? I didn't really look that much into it. I didn't look that far back. But when you were a sports broadcaster and student broadcaster here, um, was our team any good? I don't know if that really mattered to you. Maybe it did. Yeah, they, they, they had good teams. As a matter of fact, uh, in my senior year, uh, we had gone to the NIT and unfortunately lost to Loyola of Chicago, and how, by the way, they're kind in of the, tournament. the Cinderella team this year. Um, uh, yes, so that was in 1960, the spring of 63. Uh, no, no, that would have to have been 62, my senior year. And uh, and so, you know, I got to travel to New York and do the game. and You know, it was, it was just, it was wonderful. And uh, the teams weren't bad, but they certainly got a little bit better later. But before I got there, they were really good. I mean, they were the darling of the town. Uh, the 55 Duquesne team uh, was uh, an NIT champion, and at the time, the NIT was viewed upon as a better tournament than the NCAA. So, uh, and then when I was there, they were very good. But uh, then uh, in the 70s and 80s, they started to kind of tail off. And uh, I really think that in the 80s, uh, being in the league that uh, they are in and have been, uh, hasn't helped them as much as, say, the Big East helped Pitt. And so that's, I think, the difference between the two directions that the schools went in. Now, Duquesne looks like they're on the upswing. And the Panthers, well, we have to name a coach and uh, go forward from there. So uh, it's interesting how uh, the, uh, the fortunes can change, and they can change very quickly. Yeah, we'll see what happens with Pitt, and we'll get to that later on in the show with you about what's going to happen with the program over there in Oakland uh, and the coaching search and everything like that to do it. But uh, what did you do after college? Where did you really end up getting your first job and foot in the door? Well, um, part-time when I was at Duquesne, I've, for three years, I, I, I was at uh, an FM station on Mount Washington, which, uh, interestingly, it was 937 and um, it was a good music station, so I got to do music shows. I got to do news. I got to write news, uh, did some PR, and really did a lot of things that augured well. And then I went full-time after I graduated from uh, the Bluff, and I was full-time till 67. And then I finally passed my fourth audition for Channel 4 and was hired by them April 1st of 1967. And I was in the booth for like three months when the CFO called me and said, Del Taylor wants to move from radio back upstairs to television, would you mind switching positions with him? And I said, well, what's the deal? He said, well, they're going to go middle of the road, and the nighttime guy's going to be heavy on scores. I said, that's me. And uh, it fortunately got my foot back in that sports arena, and, uh, you know, it, it was a good thing. And then the boss came to me and said, have you done play-by-play? -play? And I said, yes, I did. And that's how I got involved with Pitt. So you talked about all of this experience that you've had. How has it led into what you've been doing for so many years uh, with the Steelers uh, and especially the Pitt football and men's basketball programs? Well, back in 94, I was doing television full-time and uh, part-time doing Pitt, uh, both basketball and football. Uh, and uh, one day the phone rang, and it was the TAE sales manager, and he said, 
Mr. Rooney keeps asking for your tape. And I said, what tape? I didn't submit a tape. And uh, he said, no, they're using the tape to stack up the other tapes coming in from all over the country. And the more he hears your tape, the more he likes it. And I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, here I am, a, a candidate for a job I didn't apply for. And then one thing led to another. And uh, when they presented me with the opportunity to become a full-time play-by-play guy, uh, I certainly jumped at it. You must have been pretty good, by the way, uh, to get Mr. Rooney's attention. And you mentioned Mr. Rooney. And my next question to you is, so over the years, you've worked alongside some pretty notable people, including Mr. Rooney. But uh, what was it about guys like Myron Cope and, and Dick wrote that was different than others? Or maybe they were similar, but in different ways. We can start with Grote. He and I have been together 39 years, and we are the most tenured duo in college basketball. No two guys have been together that long in the sport. Um, and, you know, he was, I think, the best athlete we've ever produced in Western Pennsylvania. And you can argue that because he's the only one that played two sports at the highest level. He played a year of uh, NBA basketball for the Fort Wayne Pistons. And then Mr. Ricky said, uh, Dick, you, your legs won't take the pounding. you got to make a choice. And reluctantly, he gave up his first love, which is basketball, and chose a little ball, which he claims he had to work at. Well, he worked at it pretty well. Uh, MVP, batting champion, two-time World Series winner. Uh, I think that's a pretty darn good baseball career. Yeah. Uh, and Myron, I miss him every day. I, I worked 11 years with him, with the Steelers, before he retired. And then people forget, 1983, Johnny Sauer wasn't cleared by the doctors to do pit football, so guess who my color man was for that year? Myron. And uh, I kind of had an audition with him and developed a chemistry with him that certainly augured well when the Steelers came knocking. You talked about Myron Cope there. Can you just explain a little more of what Myron meant to you? Um, obviously, he meant a lot to the Steelers nation and in the city. Uh, but what has his friendship with, with Myron Cope uh, and you, how has it evolved or how did it evolve over the years uh, by working alongside each other? Well, and a lot of people don't remember that when I was the disc jockey on TAE Radio, uh, we had a meeting in the program director's office, and the guy said, we got to strengthen the morning numbers. And I'm thinking we should have sports commentaries. And uh, anybody know of any good writers? And I said, well, I think Roy McHugh's the best uh, writer in the city. Uh, why don't you contact him? And just at that moment, Ron Reininger said, I got somebody better. I drink at Dante's, which was a place up in, uh, I think, Brentwood. And he said, there is an off-the-wall guy, a writer by the name of Myron Cope, who hangs out in there, and I think he'd be great. So I was there when Myron was invented, and uh, I kind of was proud of that. That's just a crazy turn of events there, and uh, clearly everyone's glad that uh, he worked alongside you for a very long time. Um, I want to cut to a break here real quick. We're really running up against a break. Uh, but when we get back, Bill Hillgrove's still here with us. Uh, we're going to get into some pit men's basketball talk and really the road ahead uh, for the program over there in Oakland. So stay with us. Notre Dame is a place where differences of culture and religion and conviction can coexist with friendship and civility and even love. We've been entrusted with Notre Dame to pass it on to the next generation. This demands that we innovate, adapt, 
and enhance the university to make it alive in the present in a way that will influence the world for another 175 years. As we go to the bottom of the 11th. Bottom of the 12th inning. So the tying run is at second, but the game right now is at the plate. And look who's coming up. We've got Ishikawa, Chris Kemper, David Ortiz, George Brett, Joe Carter is the batter. Now listen to the ovation as he comes up to the plate. And he gets his pitch. I want him to drive one. Can't wait. 3-2. In the air. A to right. Drive was born here. It's in our blood. It's who we are. It's what we make. In the land of the driven, hard work is an obsession. But when you've earned your place at the top... It's over! It's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again! Will you polish your ring? Or will it fuel you to win another? Drive pushes you harder. Lifts you higher. Because to be great, you can never act like you've arrived. You just keep driving. All right, welcome back to the program. And Bill Hillgrove is still here with us, the Pittsburgh Steelers broadcaster, radio broadcaster, and the Pitt men's basketball and Pitt football broadcaster still here with us. Um, Bill, you were right there this season uh, during the Pitt basketball games next to the action all year, uh, seeing how the team responded to Coach Stallings and adversity from time to time because there was obviously a lot of adversity uh, with no conference win and a really dismal record. Um, but what do you think was the attributing factor to such a uh, down season for the Panthers? Well, uh, inexperience. Uh, he used 15 or 16 different starting lineups, trying to get the right combination. Uh, a couple of times starting four and five freshmen. And when you do that, that inexperience, especially in a league like the ACC, which argue, arguably is the best in the nation, uh, you know, it's it's going to take its toll. And it did. And And I really think, and Kevin... He had it building, but I, I think he ran out of time, and I, I really think the empty seats told a greater tale than whatever success he was uh, going to have with uh, these young freshmen. And, and I really think that uh, the powers that be at Pitt looked at this beautiful facility uh, more than half empty most of the time, and they said, we can't have this. And so I think uh, his tenure was doomed, uh, but it wasn't all his fault. Uh, it started back when... Uh, Pitt was uh, moving season ticket holders around based on how much they were contributing. And then it continued, I think, the last couple of years for Jamie. Uh, I don't think the recruiting was on a par uh, with what it had been. And, and I think it all added up to the perfect storm. And unfortunately, Kevin Stallings had to deal with it, and he couldn't. 
a lot of people in this town have been throwing a lot of heat uh, in the general direction of Kevin Stallings. Like you mentioned, it's not all his fault. But off of the floor, how was he as a person? It seemed like when you interviewed him, uh, when you do your the re- weekly Kevin Stallings show, he seemed like a pretty straight shooter. But how did you know him to be? Yeah, I, I found him delightful. Uh, he answered your questions. He'd go with the punches. Uh, and he also would, uh, you know, help me interview guests. And, you know, the guy, the guy was just a delight to be around. But unfortunately, uh, it's uh, more than that. Uh, empty seats tell a tale, and that's a tale that administrations and athletic directors don't like. Who is a coach that uh, you think could be a sneaky good hire for Pitt? Because I don't believe Pitt's going to get that big name hire. Maybe they will on a guy in that. Thad Mata, but uh, from Ohio State. But who's a guy? I don't know how much you've been paying attention to it recently, but um, there's been a lot of talk about maybe Sean Miller coming here. Then he turned down those uh, rumors very quickly. But uh, what what kind of coach do you think this program needs, uh, especially if they lose the nine guys that declared uh, for their release from the university? All right. Well, let's deal with that point first of all, Anthony. Uh, okay, they they want to transfer, but you know it's like musical chairs. You better have a place to sit down. You better have a place to transfer to. And I think that'll be an interesting story to see not only how many of these kids really jump, but how many of them land in their perfect spots. Uh, but that's another issue. Um, I think uh, yeah, Thad Mata would be a good choice. Unfortunately, Danny Hurley, I think, and I suspect that he used the university to uh, up the ante for UConn, and I think that's the job he wanted all along. Um, I think, and maybe uh, I'm you know, putting words in his mouth, but I think at UConn he can win a championship. Uh, when you come into the ACC, you got to jump over Duke and Carolina for starters, and then Virginia and Clemson, who had great years, and, and all of a sudden it's a lot tougher in this league to win a championship. But I, I trust Heather, and I trust uh, her resources, and I think she'll come up with a basketball coach that will be a perfect fit who will sell tickets and get this thing started forward again. So we mentioned how these nine players have declared for their release, and like you said, it's musical chairs because they have to find a place to really sit down and have a place to go if they want to leave. And necessarily these players, the nine of them, or eight or nine of them that do want to leave, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually going to leave. They might just be waiting to see – um, who the new coaches? Um, but do you think that these players will stick around, or is it just going to come down to um, where what offers they're getting and uh, who's the new coach? Yeah, I think who the new coach is is going to determine a lot of that, and and, and we'll see from there. It's tough to predict. Um, I think uh, of the ones that uh, I thought were going to be ACC players, certainly Marcus Carr, fine point guard, but he just didn't shoot it that well. Uh, I think uh, Terrell Brown has a big upside, a big man who got better as the year went on. And uh, I think uh, Cameron Davis is one of the finest, uh, you know, perimeter defenders I've seen. Uh, but let's let's see how it all shakes out and let's see who they hire first to see just uh, how many of these kids are going to leave. How all of a sudden did this program seem like it just it, it went down so fast? Uh, it feels like a few seasons ago they were playing for March Madness under Coach Dixon, and now they can't even sniff the CBI. Now, a lot of it was uh, the new coach and Kevin Stallings and really getting his recruits in here and see what he can do. Uh, but what was really the main issue with this program going downhill so fast? Well, um, recruiting. And and I, I don't mean to blame Jamie for all of it, but the last couple of years at Pitt, his recruiting was not what it had been. 
I didn't see any Chevy Troutmans or Dewan Blairs running around the court. And, and as a result, you know, in basketball especially, where you only need like two or three players to provide the key for a championship, if they're not on the court, you go from the opposite of the championship toward the bottom end, and that's how they slid so fast. Why do you think the players stopped wanting to come here? Obviously, you, we aren't in their minds or anything like that, but Jamie was known to get the Dewan Blairs, the Sam Young, the Levance Fields of the world uh, for so long, and then all of a sudden it just seemed like it fell off. What was really the reason behind it? I think in Jamie's case, uh, he was comfortable recruiting New York, which is where he's from originally. And uh, without Barry Orson being on the staff, and, uh, you know, I just think his uh, moving to the ACC wasn't in his comfort zone. And I also thought that he thought a lot of Steve Peterson. And when Steve left, uh, I think Jamie's thoughts of leaving were uh, beginning to form. So it all added up to, like I say, a perfect storm, or as Pitt would say, an imperfect storm. Bill Hillgrove here with us, the Steelers sports radio broadcaster, as well as the Pitt men's basketball and Pitt football radio broadcaster. Uh, just a couple more questions here, Bill. Um, so my last real serious question. Um, so obviously Scott Barnes, the former athletic director, um, a lot of he's been getting a lot of heat, uh, especially from fans around town. Uh, do you think he's a little bit responsible for the way uh, the program has been in recent seasons because when he made, I think he was the one that did make the Kevin Stallings hire, if I'm correct. Uh, did he think that Stallings was just going to be here until another uh, big coach, like he left, another big coach left a, a team in college and then he could hire him? Or how do you think that whole situation went down with Scott Barnes? Well, first of all, I think Scott um, brought Kevin in thinking that he, uh, remember, he had great success at uh, Vanderbilt, especially producing uh, NBA players. And, uh, you know, Vanderbilt, you can't dip into the talent pool that you can uh, when you're in, an, in the ACC. Vanderbilt just has those, those strict academic requirements. And so the talent pool that he was dipping into for all those years wasn't as big as it would have been here in the ACC. And I think Scott Barnes was looking at the long term when he brought him in and was going to give him that that, that you know, that ability to build it long-term. But uh, unfortunately, Scott had a family problem creep up where his daughter uh, needed treatment. And for her to be here in Pittsburgh uh, was a burden on the family. It would be easier to go back toward the West. And that's what they did. And it was a family decision. So Scott wasn't here as long as he had hoped to be. And I think that's where this problem really took root. And uh, it just, like I say, added up to a, a storm that uh, very few people could deal with. Yeah, I think Scott Barnes got treated unfairly a lot, especially because of the family situation that he had to attend to. And obviously, clearly, that's more important uh, than his job. And that really is for that goes for anybody. Uh, so, two final questions here for you. They're kind of fun. Uh, what is the best pit basketball or pit football game you've called? Well, my favorite uh, pit football game was when Tony Dorsett broke the uh, Archie Griffin rushing record, and it happened at Navy. And they fired the cannon and the brigade uh, to a man doff their caps. I mean, it, it, it. Uh, there were tears running down my cheeks, and I had had trouble talking. And I'm saying uh, to myself, Johnny Sauer, if you ever, ever had a lot to say and could cover me here, please do it. And I looked at him, and he had tears running <laughs> down his cheeks. Uh, we we looked at a once in a lifetime athlete, and 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 it all came uh, in in full bloom right there. And and it was uh, just as dramatic as his career was and certainly finest college back I ever saw and finally this this obviously you've been covering the Steelers for quite some time 
What's the best game you've called uh, on the air? Clearly, there's been a lot of them. I imagine you're going to say a Super Bowl game, but you might say different. What What's the best game that you've called for the Steelers? Anthony, I think you have it. I think Super Bowl 43, Larry Fitzgerald scored that touchdown. The Steelers have the ball uh, with, what, two minutes and change remaining. You're correct. They have a holding penalty, so now they start with a longer field. And Ben put every pass on a Steeler player's hands the rest of that drive. And the one Antonio should have caught was in the left side of the end zone. And as it turned out, he didn't. So the next pass, Ben didn't hesitate to go right back to him. And that was in the right side of the end zone. And uh, I was kind of lucky on the call because I watched the official. I couldn't see it. It's, I'm doing most of the game to my left anyhow. And then now that's not only to my left, but far side of the field. So it was hard for me to see that he actually caught the ball. So I'm watching the official. And I think it was Boris Cheek. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyhow, the official, when he saw the catch, started with his hands. When they got to his waist, I called touchdown because I knew they were going up to the touchdown sign. And I, I think I was very fortunate uh, in that way to be able to call it that way and be right on top of it. Yeah, that was one of the most incredible games I've ever seen, especially in NFL history. Well, that, that about does it here for Episode 9 of the Anthony Ferrella Show. We really covered a lot. Bill, thanks for coming on, and you know you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Anthony, for the kind words, and keep up the good work. Also a reminder to all of you listeners out there that Paul Feinbaum of ESPN and the SEC Network will be joining us on the show next week. You definitely don't want to miss that. Thanks for listening. You can catch us live Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central Time at our streaming link. If you miss a show, don't worry. We've got you covered. Head over to soundcloud.com forward slash anthforella or search for us on Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode of the show. Don't forget us on Twitter at AF underscore WDSR.